The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us in this room however we find ourselves at this moment. I'm guessing there's a lot of us here who may feel like me right now, anxious, discouraged, fearful, helpless. Or maybe we come in here today and we're just spiritually sleepy, wondering if you are real or if this is just some kind of blind hope. Or maybe we come in here today and we're quite happy. It's been a great week given the events of the world, but still we find ourselves here today. The reality is all of us in one way or another need for you to show up in our lives right now. And so we ask for you to do it. Or maybe more importantly, ask for you to wake us up to the presence that is already here. And so help us with that today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in high school, I was, as I've said here before, peaking out as an athlete in the 11th grade. But the one sport that I could never play was basketball. I was good at football, good at baseball, just mediocre at basketball. But uh, it wouldn't matter because the basketball team in high school, when I was in high school, was ranked number one in the entire United States of America by USA Today magazine. We had an amazing team. And so in the 11th grade, that team was projected to go all the way to state finals, and it did, lost, tragically, tragically. But, um, but it was an unbelievable year because this team was amazing. And I remember going to like the third game of the year, and I noticed the announcer was 
a man much older and just really not into it. So I went to the head coach and I said, Coach Walstead, Fred Harrell, I don't know if you know me, your announcer's terrible. I'd like to do it. And he said, you know what? He doesn't want to do it. I'll give you one, I'll give you one audition. We're playing Haines City on Friday. Who, who goes to the Haines City game? No one. Except for this team is so good, everybody came. And so I prepared. Now, this team had some great names. One of the stars was Alonzo Allen. Another was Lucius Duke Pearson. Great names. I can do a lot with that. And so I prepared, and you know, I'd watch these guys on TV do it, and I was ready. And so at time time, and so when the visiting team was announced, I would just mumble their names under my breath, starting at guard, John Smith, starting as forward, Joe McGillicuddy, you know, just nothing. And then it came time for the Lakeland High School Dreadnoughts. That's a World War I battleship. I know, odd. When it came time for the Lakeland High School Dreadnoughts, Smith said, and ladies and gentlemen, your Lakeland Dreadnoughts, starting a guard, a six-foot-one junior, Lucius Duke Pearson. So, uh, I think I'm enjoying it right now as much as I did then. Mm. And then, of course, Alonzo Allen. I mean, that's fantastic. Of course, we announce him last because he's the best player. And starting it forward, a 6'6 senior, Alonzo Wallace! People went crazy. After the game, I go up to Coach Walstead and I said, so, what do you think? He's like, definitely, you're in. And I was the announcer for the rest of that year. Oh, so much fun. Fast forward to my sophomore year at the University of Florida. There's a point to this story. Fast forward to the University of Florida as a sophomore. I'm pledging my fraternity, trying to get into the Alpha Tau Omega fraternity. For some of you, I know it's deeply disappointing that I did that. Sorry. And, uh, you know, you're a pledge. And when you're a pledge, you're trying to make a good impression. And so I'm sitting around at lunch, you know, and I'm trying to be my best friend so I can get into this fraternity. And the guys around me are from Winter Haven. Winter Haven is about a 10-minute drive from Lakeland, much smaller town. And they were talking about high school. And they were saying, you know what we used to do? We, I mean, you're not going to believe this, Fred, but we saw Lakeland as a place to go have to the big city. I was like, oh, that's crazy. And I said, really? Go, yeah, because our, the fa most favorite things, we used to go to those basketball games. They were amazing. To see. I said, oh, wasn't that a great team? Unbelievable team. They said, no, no, no. We, we're not talking about the game. We're talking about the announcer. Oh, yeah. I said, go on. <laughs> oh, we'd show up early, and he would be yelling and screaming the names and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, like, go on, say some more. I was milking it, people, trying to get into this frat. And then finally I said, did he sound like this? And I did my, I won't subject you to that again. I'm sure it was painful. And they freaked out. It was you. The whole, yeah, that's me. I was the voice of the dreadnoughts. Never worried about getting that fraternity the rest of my time. <laughs> I went from being this to being this announcer guy. Now, 
It's a stretch, but it's such a great story. Come on. It's such a great story. Jesus. You're waiting on that word, weren't you? My Lord and Savior, I hope he's yours. Jesus. Preaching's not easy. I don't know if anybody's told you. You get a story like that, you've got to find a way to work it in. And it's been here 25 years, I've never told that story. Somebody's like, why not? That's a good one. Thank you. Jesus goes from being a rabbi who, yeah, did the occasional miracle. Uh, somebody that, you know, not surprised that Jesus would say to James, John, and Peter, hey, we're going to go do a little mountaineering. Let's go to the top of Mount Tabor, about 900 feet tall, not a very big mountain, just north of uh, Nazareth, which is north of Jerusalem. And um, we're going to go up there. So they're thinking, yeah, this is the rabbi's going to teach us again. This is what he does. And then this event happens, a spectacular event, an event where it's so spectacular that it says that Jesus' clothes became dazzling. And, it, and things would never be the same. They would never view Jesus the same way again. And there is your tie-in. <laughs> I don't know if you saw it, but it's... It's there, if you just look hard. So what happened on that mountain? It's better, it's better experienced, honestly, than told in words, because it's very difficult to explain. The, the scriptures say the transfiguration. You know, dazzling white clothes. Jesus somehow becomes the same Jesus, but something other and different and mysterious. What, how do we put words around this? How do we describe this? It's like, it's like when you fall in love. It's like my first date with Torelli. How do, I can use words. You know, her, her beauty, her, her, her elegance, you know, her way, her energy, her braces. <laughs> That's the truth. She had braces when we started dating. All of those things, for whatever reasons, the way that everything happened is just so compelling and endearing and mysterious. You, it's hard to put these things into words, and the same is true when trying to talk about the transfiguration. And now, there's more, though. There's always more with Jesus, because now Peter, James, and John are looking at, somehow they knew, Moses and Elijah. Now, if you're not familiar with these things, those dudes have been dead a long time, 14 centuries for Moses, eight centuries for Elijah. And they're up there commiserating. They're up there talking. You know, most commentators will say they kind of represent the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. That's another way that the scriptures talk about the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets. And what commentators say is what we have here is this hinge point to the cross, this hinge point where the great project of God and the renewal of all things is being handed off to a new Moses, to a new Elijah, to Jesus who will go through his own kind of exodus, his own departure, as he calls it, um, in this transfiguration story. Now, then step in Peter. Peter, unfortunately, starts to talk. <laughs> He's in the presence of great mystery, holy mystery. And he speaks. Now, first off, it's a good idea to stay silent in the place of holy mystery right? That's a good policy. But he speaks. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is pretty good. He says, it's good to be here. Okay, Peter, zip it. That's great. 
And then he's like, I got an idea. And it all goes south. We're going to build a booth for Moses over here. We're going to build a booth for Elijah right here. And Jesus, we're going to make yours right over here. It's almost like you can hear him saying, we're going to offer a gift shop. And there's going to be pamphlets and guided tours. And, you know, I don't know if your job, did they ever give you honest feedback? But Peter got some honest feedback. Because the voice from the heavens opens up. And this thunderous voice comes down. This is my son, the chosen, the beloved. And here are the three words we're going to focus on. Listen to him. Not listen to Elijah, not listen to Moses, listen to him. They kind of disappear from the scene. Now, that's what happened. My question to you is, why does that matter? And I'm going to use the lens of listen to him. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but I'm going to use that lens to look at a few things here that, that show us why this is so important. So listen to him means, number one, we can have, and you may not be connecting this dot, but bear with me, a nonviolent Bible. Now, what do I mean by that? And this is very important, by the way. I've been here 25 years. I've been ministering for 31. And easily, this is one of the greatest obstacles for someone to actually consider faith that they are not used to. Some of us, we get inculcated in these stories, and we hear these stories of genocide and so on. And like, yeah, 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 I've read that story. It just rolls off. But other people reading it for the first time are like, this is maniacal. What do I do with that? So Jesus, I believe, saves the Bible from being just another violent and vengeful religious text. God makes it clear to Peter, James, and John, listen to Him. As we seek to follow the way of love, if we are trying to live our lives distinctively as Christians, Jesus' voice will have priority over every voice in Scripture. This is what Jesus taught those disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's all about me. Put it this way, if Christians aren't going to read the Bible in the light of Christ, honestly, I wish they wouldn't read it at all. It's that important. You talk to anybody in my circles and theologians and pastors and stuff, and they will tell you part of what is so upside down in this country right now is caused by how people are reading their holy text. I'll let Brian Zahn put it this way. This is what he said. Jesus is the true and living word of God. Jesus is what the law and the prophets point toward and bow to. Jesus is what the Old Testament was trying to say but could never fully articulate. Jesus is the perfect word of God in the form of a human life. God couldn't say all he wanted to say in the form of a book, so he said it in the form of Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. The law and the prophets were the lesser lights in the pre-Christ night sky. They were the moon and the stars. Israel could grope forward by their soft light. The Hebrews could navigate through the pagan night by constellations. In a world of Stygian darkness, the moonlight and starlight emanating from the Torah and the prophets made all the difference. But with Christ, morning is broken. The new day has dawned. The sun of righteousness has risen with healing in its rays. Now the moon and the stars, Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets are eclipsed by the full glory of God in Christ. Ritual sacrifices, Torah sanctions, the killing in the name of God, all are part of Scripture, but are eventually re-evaluated in the light of Jesus and what He taught. And I would argue, friends, 
that Jesus is simply being, as my Jewish friends tell me, he was simply just carrying on the tradition of being a good Jew and reevaluating those texts because that's what happens in the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures already. You have Moses saying it's all about sacrifice, and then the psalmist and Hosea saying, no, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Do you see the Old Testament correcting itself? We'll have a story about a person in the, in the historical books in the book of uh, 2 Kings where this fellow goes in and murders the entire royal family, and it's all said, hurrah, God told me to do that, hurrah. And then later on in the same Hebrew scriptures, you will say, no, actually, that was a horrible thing. Violence is not the way of God. That correcting, the text and travail, as Walter Ruggeman calls it, is happening, and Jesus is doing it as well. Because you can justify anything with the Bible on your side because you deify it, and you believe you have God on your side, and that is, as Bob Dylan taught us many moons ago, a very dangerous thing. The atrocities that can be committed under the name of religion are manifold and the most dangerous in the world. This is why I said Jesus saved the Bible from being just another violent, invengeable religious text. We had a tragic, tragic modern-day example of this in the past week when the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, which is not the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, but of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch, Patriarch Kirill of Moscow. Tragically, tragically, and let's hope momentarily, there is always hope for repentance, sold his soul for nationalistic pride, which is the tragic repeated error of that particular branch of Christ's body and the repeated error right now of much of white evangelicalism today. Nationalism. He blessed the bloodlust of, 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 of soldiers, of uh, Russian soldiers, and a murderous dictator in Vladimir Putin. He blessed it. And let me tell you, he could read his Bible in a way that would justify him. But we must not. We must not. We must listen to him. Rachel Held Evans, the late Rachel Held Evans, said, if you're looking for verses which, which to support save, slavery, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you'll find them. If you're looking for verses with which to liberate or honor women, you'll find them. If you're looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you're looking for an outdated, irrelevant, ancient text, you will find it. If you're looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. This is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not what does it say, but what am I looking for? Because we all bring lens, lenses when we read the text. Jesus says, hey, be intentional about those lenses. Me. Put on me as you read this. I suspect Jesus knew this when he said, ask and will be given to you, seek and, you'll be find, and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. If you want to do violence in this world, you will always find the weapons. If you want to heal, you will always find the balm. Listen to him. Listen to that part about liberation of the oppressed. 
about being good news for the poor, sight to the blind, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your enemy, taking up our crosses, dying in order to live, to be last in order to be first, to refuse the invitation to turn away from God's loving care and guidance, to watch out for greed and not allowing it to overtake our lives. A Bible that must be always read through the lens of Jesus is a Bible that will give you life. Do you want the Bible to give you life? Put on these lens, and it will be good news for the whole world and lead you faithfully to know and understand the God revealed in Jesus. Listening to Him also means that we have a transformative aspiration a transformative aspiration, and that aspiration is to be Christ-like. If we're to listen to Him, the goal of God for our lives, and Paul says this, that we are to be conformed to the image of His Son, that's the big goal, then our goal is to be Christ-like. If you're like me, you were taught that the goal was to be biblical. And that can be tricky. It sounds good, and I understand that. But I can get the Bible, as has already been talked about, to do just about any of my bidding if I want it to. But it gets much more difficult as the actual goal is to be Christ-like. Christ-like. Listen to Him. We don't just want biblical justice, because if you're like me, you'll just turn that into ways to return to our natural proclivities for vengeance and violence. We'll find ways to justify it. But we want Christ-like justice. Restorative justice. Justice that centers the voices of the marginalized. We don't want biblical manhood and womanhood, just to point that out again, Good, go to that seminar, because what we'll do is we'll just cherry pick some machismo figures from the Bible and we'll go, there it is, that's what you're supposed to do, and we'll find ways to tell women, yeah, you're supposed to be subjected to men. And we'll dress it up in all sorts of language, but it's just all dressed up patriarchy. No, we want Christ-like aspirations, no matter what gender identity and expression is ours. We don't want biblical politics. That just easily turns into Machiavellian, everybody all in, win-lose. No, we want the values of the reign of God that are marked by love and mercy and grace and forgiveness and, and peace, Christ-likeness. What turned the world upside down in the first century is a group of people who are proclaiming that the God of all the universe is a God who sits on a cross. And from that cross, instead of exercising vengeance, recycles the violence against him, with forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Who breaks through death to resurrection? Not to come back and kill all those people that put him on the cross, but to forgive them. This is all Jesus does post-resurrection. He's just forgiving everything and inviting into his way. That's what turned the world upside down. Why do we aspire to be a church that gives itself to more and more understanding what it means to be anti-racist? Because we want to be Christ-like. That's why. Why do we take risks and branch out and entrepreneur new ministries like City Hope and the Counseling Center and Newbiggin and so on and so forth? Why has this been our history? Because we're trying to be like Christ. That's the goal. Why don't we talk about hard things? Why do we talk about things that sometimes make people walk out the door? We interrogate our complicity in white supremacy and we talk about ways in which we've been complicit in systemic injustice and it's uncomfortable. We don't like to feel uncomfortable, but dang it, we do it because it is Christ-like to do this and the world needs the church desperately to do this. 
That's a goal. That's an aspiration that's healthy and good and that we can give ourselves to. And Jesus is standing on that mountain, and it's just him with those disciples. And he's saying, and God says, listen to him. And lastly, I'll, I'll, I'll land the plane here. Listen to him means we have a God that we can trust, a trustworthy God. The transfiguration puts a fine point on what the New Testament sells elsewhere, and that is very simply that God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus. As Paul says in Colossians, Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. What is God like? God is like Jesus, and Jesus is what God has to say, as Brian Zahn said earlier in that quote. You know, when I speak about Christian faith to others, telling them God is like Jesus is always met with, well, if that's the case, I'm interested. I cannot tell you how many poor Uber drivers are subjected to me talking to them about this. <laughs> or Lyft. And whichever one's cheaper and closer. <laughs> Priority is pretty cool on Lyft right now, just saying. Catch up, Uber. Uh, but when I, when I tell them I'm a pastor, and recently I had to tell one, I said, look, I'm not a fascist. Isn't that sad? And the look of relief, it's like, whew, thanks for saying that. And if I just say simply, you know what, I'll tell you what I think God's like. I think God's like Jesus. Try this. I don't know what you think God's like, but I think he's like Jesus. That's it. Let's talk. Not always, but it does happen. If you want to know what God is like, the scriptures say, look at Jesus. Because as the writer of Hebrews says, he is the exact imprint of God's very being. There's a place in the Bible, I'll give you an example. There's a place in the Bible where Jesus and the disciples were going along and they needed lodging for the night and they knock on the door of this Samaritan's home and they won't let him in. They're like, nope, we're not letting you in. And so Peter, James, and John are thinking, do they know who he is? Do they know what kind of power he has? This is the guy who walks on water. This is the guy who feeds 5,000. You know, he's, he's a pretty powerful guy. We know what's about to happen now. Call down some fire from heaven, Jesus. Is that what you want us to do right now? I think our, we've met, we've talked about this. Our recommendation is for you to pull out, pull out your power. Rain down fire on these people who will not give us hospitality. Do you know what Jesus says to them? He says, do you know what spirit that comes from? I did not come to take life, but to give life. Anytime a Christian has become entranced with reaching for raw power to privilege themselves about others, you can be sure it is a demonic spirit at work. I mean, what do you think is going on in James and John's head at that moment? They're probably thinking, that's new. That's an adjustment. <laughs> we have to rethink things. If Jesus is making you rethink things, stand in line. This is what he does. And this, I would argue, is a more full revelation of God. That's what Jesus is, what God is to say. Moses can stone sinners. Elijah can call down fire from heaven. But Jesus, for a Christian, that doesn't matter because we follow Jesus. That's why the transfiguration is so important. A nonviolent Bible when we listen to him. A transformative aspiration. Christ-likeness. Sign me up for that. A trustworthy God.
And so as we round off Epiphany and we're here at the Transfiguration, it's a perfect hinge point to the cross because here now we, end, we go in on Wednesday night to our Lenten journey. It begins with the baptism of Jesus, voice from heaven, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. It ends with the Transfiguration, another voice from heaven, this is my son, the chosen, and listen to him. And that is the great challenge of Lent. What does it mean for me to actually listen to him? How have I shut him out of my life? How am I not listening to him? What are the ways that I'm being called to that may not sit well with my family system? That others may not understand. But I'm doing this because at the end of the day, I have to follow him. In verse 37, it wasn't printed up there. It says, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And I would just like to say, you know, it would be nice to just stay up on that mountain, wouldn't it? But they have to come down. We have to come down. Last quote from Richard Rohr. The disciples first respond to the transfigured Christ with fear. In our global time of crisis, this is where many of us are today. The disciples mirror the itinerary of the spiritual journey we start out with, with many spiritual journey. We start out with many concerns, fears, and worries. Our minds and hearts are all over the place, but Jesus comes, touches them, and says, Get up and do not be afraid. When the three disciples raise their eyes, they see nothing but one image, Jesus. Their lives have become fully focused and simplified on the one thing that is good, the one thing they desire, and the one thing that is necessary. What a moment of grace and encouragement. Friends, in what has been one of the most horrific weeks that most of us can have had in memory, as we look at events in the world stage, everything from a governor in Texas endangering the lives of trans kids to this murderous dictator slaughtering men, women, and children in Ukraine, it really is a veil of tears. But we come together today to defiantly, insistently believe that death does not have the final word, that God's realm will not be stopped. And in the face of everything, we join those Ukrainian siblings of ours who this moment are being bombed who are praying to God for their lives we join them we join them even in the midst of their holy joy and holy terror and we say this is Transfiguration Sunday period happy Transfiguration in the midst of our sorrow. Let us pray. Gracious God, we need you in our life. We need you in a new and profound and powerful way. Give us your presence or make us aware of it and help us to trust Help us to trust that you are good and that you love us, that you see us, that you hear us. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.